Welcome to the Climate Report on Forward Radio, WFMP, 106.5 FM, Louisville. This is Hart Hagen, your host. We are on episode number 136. Today's topic is a new deal for a new era, part two. We'll be talking about a new deal for a new era in a few minutes, but first, here's what the Climate Report is all about. So we have a serious problem uh, to deal with, uh, and it's known as climate change. It should be called climate catastrophe or climate disruption. And we have been insulated from the truth and the reality of climate change because we are under the influence of commercial media that do not give these issues sufficient emphasis. And sometimes when they do talk about climate change, They make it sound like there's a legitimate debate or a legitimate discussion as to whether it's a real issue or how serious it is or whether humans cause the problem or whether humans can solve the problem. Instead, what we should be doing is we should be having front page headlines about what people are doing to solve the problem. And we should be having front page headlines that explain how we are changing our institutions, how we are changing our economic institutions, our educational institutions to address the problem, how we are changing our media to address the problem, how we are changing our government to address the problem. We should have front page stories that tell us how we got to this place. How is it that 30 years ago we officially learned about climate change And what was standing in our way? What has been standing in our way in the last 30 years? We need to take serious inventory. And if we had a media that was honest, they would be talking about this every day, all the time, because these are the real problems that we face. Instead, what the media does is get us focused on false issues and false problems. The story of politics is not the story of how the people are going to get their way and how the people will assert their will. The story of politics is a drama of the American political royalty. What is Nancy Pelosi saying about Donald Trump and what is Donald Trump saying about his political opponents? And when Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez gets into office, it's not about how the people of her district finally have a representative who will go to bat for their interests. It's about how the establishment Democrats are responding to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and how the Republicans, what the Republicans are saying about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, which is a distraction from the real issue of how the people are going to assert their will against all odds. That's why the Climate Report is primarily about politics, because we've known the science for quite a while, and it's good for us to know more about the science. But absence of science is not the reason we're not moving forward. We're not moving forward because of political obstacles. In any event, we've known for 150 years that carbon dioxide is a greenhouse gas. We know that Since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere has gone from 280 parts per million to now over 400 parts per million, and it is moving rapidly toward 500 parts per million. And if we don't change our course from business as usual, 
it's going to end up at a thousand parts per million, and believe me when I say we will not survive that. Some scientists say we may already be past the point of no return, but that's all the more reason to scramble and to salvage what we can, and in the process become much more human as a society than we have been in the past. The society that has brought us climate change, I'm sorry to say, is anything but civilized and is anything but humanitarian. Not that people aren't civilized, but we have systems that are not civilized. Because the people who will suffer the most and have already suffered the most are those least responsible for our crisis. Those most responsible for our crisis, in other words, the heaviest emitters of carbon dioxide, are the Western democracies, United States, Great Britain, Canada, France. Now China is one of the heaviest emitters of carbon dioxide, but only because they're manufacturing goods that we buy from them. And quite often it's American companies making all the profits from the goods that the Chinese manufacture. So we Americans are the most responsible, historically the greatest emitter of carbon dioxide, and yet it's people in the global south who will suffer the most because of famine, because of drought, because of mass migration, because of flooding. But we have an opportunity to create a whole new world. It's a world where strong countries do not dominate weak countries. It's a world where the rich do not dominate the poor. It's a world where we study the genocide that America has been responsible for in Vietnam, in Iraq, in Guatemala, in Indonesia. And we ask, how did we ever let that happen. Not for the purpose of feeling bad, but for the purpose of creating a better world. It will be a better world because the people are in charge, not a few self-appointed autocrats like Jeff Bezos or Warren Buffett or Bill Gates, who are only the most famous of a ruling class that rules because we have decided to create a system in which those who have most of the money have all the power. We can change that, and that's what the Climate Report is all about. This program is part of WFMP's Public Affairs Educational Programming. The views expressed are those of the speaker and not the station. If you have any comments, questions, or feedback, please email info at theclimatereport.net. Also go to theclimatereport.net for my latest podcast episodes, videos, and blog posts. We're going to continue reading and commenting on a website called neweconomics.org. It's the New Economics Foundation. Now, I had previously thought that the Green Party had the original Green New Deal. And maybe they did, but the New Economics Foundation also originated a Green New Deal at at about the same time, and they may have collaborated on it. In the last episode, we started reading through what they consider to be their six guiding principles. Principles which really resonate with me, and I think they will with you also. So let's read the first three and then go from there. Principle number one, 
We're guided by six principles. Number one, a thriving and healthy environment at the core of the new system. Living within environmental limits and reversing climate change is a core purpose of our economic model and the institutions that guide it. Principle number two, better and more equal living standards. The basics for a decent quality of life, basic income, housing, health, social care, education, and child care. And income and wealth inequality are reduced with improvements in well-being regardless of class, race, or gender. With respect to item number one, a thriving and healthy environment at the core of the new system, living within environmental limits, we talked about we have a system that, do, that doesn't respect limits. It's not that we're dealing with bad people necessarily, but we have allowed a few people to maneuver and to extract wealth and make money at the expense of everybody else and with no regard for environmental limits. There are limits to what you can put into the water there are limits to what you can put into the air. There are limits to the amount of deforestation that you can do without serious damage. But we have an economic system that knows nothing about those limits. With respect to item number two, better and more equal living standards, we talked about how human decency has been vilified by the American religion of anti-socialism. You are vilified if you talk about equality. You are vilified if you talk about giving people free education or health care. The reason for that is the people with the most money who have all the power know that they have a lot to lose if we as a society actually pay for people to have a decent standard of living irrespective of their ability to pay. Item number three, greater common and cooperative ownership. Common ownership of public goods, essential infrastructure, and services is the norm with more businesses, assets, and technologies in cooperative, mutual, or employee ownership. In other words, private property should not be sacred like it is now. There is a place for private property but we don't want a situation where everything has a price tag. When you talk about common ownership of public goods, for example, you're talking about pollinators. Just because an agribusiness corporation owns the land that a butterfly flies over does not mean they own that butterfly and does not mean they can kill pollinators indiscriminately just because they own the land. There are certain aspects of their land that are not private property. We would do well to have more common ownership and less private ownership. Amazon.com is an example of, pri of private purchase of books. We can do some of that, but we also need a lot more ownership of books by the public library. We need to stop the insanity that is privatization of public schools. We need to stop the insanity whereby corporations have the legal right to keep their science a secret. 
when corporations are able to keep their science a secret, it allows them to distort science for the sake of their own profit margins. So, for example, Monsanto has been the manufacturer of glyphosate, also known as Roundup. Whatever they find out about the public health impact of Roundup needs to be public information by law and by default. But instead, they are able to pay scientists, some of whom are employees and some of whom are employed by public universities and private universities, and they are able to get those scientists to not publish any findings that are adverse to the interests of Monsanto. But scientific knowledge should categorically be in the public domain. For one thing, you and I are paying the salaries of those scientists insofar as they work for public universities. But in any event, public health is not a private matter. We should also have more drugs being developed by the government directly and not by private pharmaceutical companies. You and I, as taxpayers, pay for the research that is used to develop drugs, for example, uh, cancer drugs. Some of that is funded by the NIH, the National Institute for Health. Some of it is is funded through tax credits where the pharmaceutical company just claims tax credits because they spent a certain amount of money on research. And then when somebody gets sick and needs the medicine, they keep all the profits. They get to take out patents on drugs that they've developed at our expense. That's an example of too much private ownership and too much private control over something that should be in the public domain. Item number four on the New Economics Foundation's Guiding Principles, Progressive Businesses. Now, I loved reading this when I thought of certain people that I know who want to vilify socialism by connecting it with the Soviet Union. Not that the Soviet Union was all bad. Remember that most of what we know about the Soviet Union came to us through state-sponsored propaganda. And I'm not saying it's all good. I'm saying we should have a balanced view and we should exercise critical thinking. But today's democratic socialists are not advocating the type of government the Soviet Union had. But the enemies of socialism don't care about the truth, do they? So principle number four, progressive businesses. Private companies are incentivized to act for the long-term and public good with social and environmental responsibility and strong voice and power for workers built into their business models. So at least two problems are being addressed here. One problem is that publicly traded companies, if they don't want their stock value to plummet, They have to be very attentive to the next quarterly return, the next quarterly financial statement. They have to keep their stock value up at all cost in the very short term. And if they don't, their officers can be sued or fired. So you have this strong institutional mandate to focus on the short term. 
And one of the guiding principles of the New Economics Foundation says private companies should be incentivized to act for the long term and the public good. If that means get ri- getting rid of the stock market, we need to do that because in many respects we need to have a balanced view. The stock market is not the economy and the economy is not the stock market. The stock market is not the economic well-being of the American people, and the economic well-being of the American people is not the stock market. We have to get rid of these old notions that no longer serve us if they ever did. So corporations under this scheme of things should no longer be solely focused on stock value and profits. Stock value and profits are related to each other, so they're about the same. I mean, they're not the same thing, but they're so closely connected that they are they go together. So it is sometimes said that corporations should be attentive to the needs of stakeholders, not just stockholders. Stakeholders include employees. Stakeholders include the communities in which the corporations are physically located. Stakeholders include customers. Of course, every corporation has to take into account the needs and desires of the customer, but it's more of a manipulative thing. When McDonald's heavily advertises toys in Happy Meals, they're wanting to sell a product if they have to manipulate to do so. And most parents across the political spectrum would like to see a day when McDonald's does not advertise to their children. So corporations should not just be incentivized to do good things for their stockholders, but also their stakeholders, the employees, their neighbors, and their customers. The other issue that's being addressed in this paragraph is, it says, a strong voice and power for workers built into their business model. So, The way corporations are currently structured, most corporations, they're just a flat tyranny. It's my way or the highway. The boss is the boss and that's that. And it doesn't mean people are always rude or mean or vicious to one another. But it does mean that everybody knows who is the boss. It is an autocracy. Autocracies are more likely to pollute a worker owned business that is a democracy would be less likely to pollute. Worker-owned businesses are more likely to make reasonable concessions to employees. Worker-owned businesses are more likely to be ethical in the way they deal with their customers. So there are different ways to give workers a voice. One is to allow them to form labor unions. Another is to form worker-owned businesses. And somebody might say, Hart, well, you can do a worker-owned business. That's your business. Nothing prevent- It's a free country. Nothing preventing you from doing a worker-owned business. And that's true, but one point I would make is that legally and financially, worker-owned businesses have an uphill battle in that some banks are not allowed to make loans to worker-owned businesses. For another thing, most people don't know about worker-owned businesses. For another thing, we don't have very many policies that encourage worker-owned businesses. 
For example, Italy has a situation in which if you become unemployed, one of your options is to take a year's worth of unemployment insurance in a lump sum provided that you use that to go into partnership with other unemployed people in a worker-owned business. So the government of Italy is strongly encouraging workers to form worker-owned businesses. Another point I would make, and it's even more important than the others, is that as long as worker-owned businesses have to compete in a cutthroat capitalist system, then that is going to kind of defeat the purpose. According to Gar Alperovitz, who has, he's a historian and by all rights a political economist, he says that worker-owned businesses, when they have to compete with other capitalist businesses, they end up behaving like those capitalist businesses in the sense of being aggressive with their marketing, adversarial toward the employees. And you might say, Hartwell, isn't that always going to be the case as long as we have a capitalist system? And the answer may be yes, but there are things that we can do to protect worker-owned businesses from cutthroat capitalist competition. For example, in Cleveland, where Gar Alperovitz has done much of his work, you have publicly owned universities and hospitals that have decided to do business with worker-owned businesses. Whenever they can, they prefer to do business with worker-owned businesses. As as a result, the worker-owned businesses have this whole market that they can tap into where they don't have to face the cutthroat capital uh, the cutthroat competition of a capitalist system and one thing this points to one point that Alperovitz was making is that capitalism is a boom and bust type of uh, dynamic some proud capitalists call their entrepreneurism creative destruction in other words you have to crack a few eggs to make an omelet Well, the thing is, people aren't eggs, and communities aren't eggs, and we're not making omelets. We need to create situations where there's more stability and more predictability, and a capitalist environment cannot do that. I like saying that in order for small businesses to be able to be truly competitive, there need to be strong socialist controls. So, for example, you might say that in our county, we're not going to allow an agribusiness corporation to own over 100 acres or 500 acres, but there's some number. And we're going to say that, you might say that we're just not going to allow corporations to own anything. Or Or if it is a corporation, it has to be, you know, a small corporation. But we're not going to let all the land be bought up by these agribusiness giants about five of which control the vast majority of commodities like wheat and corn and rice. We're just not going to allow this market to be dominated by agribusiness giants. We have decided that our, in this case, farming business is not going to be a game of monopoly. In the game of monopoly, it's winner take all. There's somebody at the end of that game that owns everything. And without strong socialist controls on what business can do, 
you're going to have one or a few players that own everything. That's not good for the consumers. That's not good for workers. That's not good for the environment. It's not good for the economy. Item number five on the New Economics Foundation's list of guiding principles is a decentralized active state. Both of those words are important. Decentralized and active. An active and enabling partner state that is significantly decentralized with strong local institutions that are rooted in and accountable to the communities they serve. Wouldn't that be different from what we have now? Let me start with this. The only successful economies that have ever existed are those where the state is very proactive. That doesn't mean the state has to micromanage everything. The word decentralized means something. It means Washington, D.C. is not going to micromanage every market in every local community. In fact, local communities are going to have the power to decide how they are going to manage things. So, for example, you can have publicly owned banks. The federal government may provide some assistance in setting up a locally owned, publicly owned bank, but it doesn't need to micromanage it, and one community may manage it a little differently from another community. But it's going to be managed for the benefit of people, not for the benefit of Wall Street. So the word strong, here's a phrase, strong local institutions. What are those strong local institutions? Well, some of them can be labor unions. Some of them can be farming cooperatives. Some of them can be purchasing cooperatives. Some of them can be locally controlled restaurant associations. And by locally controlled, we mean it's not dominated by the federal government, and it's not dominated by the National Chamber of Commerce, and it's not dominated by the National Restaurant Association, which controls all the fast food. So a prevailing theme in modern 21st century democratic socialism, a prevailing theme is federal funding, local control. Federal funding is needed for fairness and equity, but local control is needed because otherwise you've got the federal government micromanaging everything and there's no reason to do that. The federal government might be able to set some broad standards to make sure that these institutions are managed by and for the public, are non-discriminatory, etc. But we want a decentralized, active state. Active means the state is not going to be on the side of the big monopolies who promote this fraudulent idea of free market economics, which only gives the most power to the biggest players. I've got about another minute and a half left. I'd like to leave you with a thought. Sometimes I like saying that we've never seen democracy. We've been told that we live in a democracy and there's some slither of truth to that, but it has always been a limited democracy. It ha- in the beginning, it was limited by you had to be white, male, property owner. And then those rights were gradually expanded 
not out of the benevolence of the privileged classes, but because of raucous citizens who made their demands, often at the expense of their very life. So famous in American history is the bloody struggle of the abolitionists, both black and white, to free the slaves. Also famous is the struggle for the women's right to vote. But buried in our history, unknown in our history, is the struggle of labor for the 40-hour work week, the struggle of labor for a minimum wage, the struggle of labor to end child labor, which the business community fought tooth and nail. The expansion of rights is a story of struggle. If we want change, we must demand it. And we must change because our very survival depends on it. But we can change, and we will. That's all for today. Glad you stopped by. Hope you'll come back next time.